this story, we saw a man whose attachment to the earth proved too much for him to, to follow Christ. It's a sad story, really. It's a story about a man who was offered eternal life by Jesus Christ Himself. And you may witness to someone and you may walk away thinking, wow, I wish I would have said this, or wow, I should have said that, and maybe even blame yourself a little bit for the fact that they didn't trust Christ. But here you have Jesus Christ Himself as the evangelist. And so obviously the Lord knows exactly how to evangelize. And this man walks away with sadness in his heart. He walks away from eternal life. And he walks away gloomy, dreary, sad in his heart. Not because he realizes that he's giving up salvation, but because of what salvation required of him. He was sad at the thought of losing what he loved, which was his, which was his two treasures. True treasure. He wanted eternal life. I think that's evident by the fact that the way he comes, he approaches, he asks the question. But he wanted it as addition, not as complete substitution for everything in in life. And you need to understand the math of salvation if if you hope to get to heaven. Salvation is not obtained by addition. It's gained by replacement. You don't add Jesus to your life. You, you forsake your life and follow Him. It's, it's your life for His. And, and that's not a bad deal if you understand that you're a sinner. And saved sinners understand that those who have left all and received Christ possess true treasure. Both now and then will gain even more in the life to come. And that's what Jesus explains to the disciples and, and to us today. There's really two parts to, to this section, and, and there's a bridge in between. And, and we covered the first part the last time. That begins in verses 17 through 22, typically called the rich young ruler. And it's, it's the object lesson about salvation. And, and, and really what we said pre-evangelism, it's repentance. Jesus doesn't say the same thing as, as Paul says to the Philippian jailer when he says, what, what must I do to be saved? Jesus doesn't say, believe on me. He, he calls him to repentance, because that's where he needs to start with this man. So this is an object lesson about salvation and what can, what can keep that from, from happening in your life. That's verse 17 through 22. The second half of this is the Lord's teaching of his disciples in light of that, which is verses 28 through, through 31. And that's the, the kingdom instruction on possessions and true riches. You remember, Jesus is setting in order, the, the, uh, uh, setting things rightly in light of the kingdom for the disciples. He's teaching them. He's in this year-long period of time where he's instructing the disciples before he goes to the, to the cross. And this is the kingdom instruction on, on possessions and, and true spiritual riches. And that's in verses 28, as I said, through 31. The bridge that connects them is where Jesus makes these shocking statements, and, and the disciples are blown away. That's in verse 23 through, through 27. It's the bridge that connects this series of statements that Jesus makes to His disciples as they watch the rich young ruler walk away from salvation. You, you might title the whole thing, Leaving All, Losing All, and then Gaining More. Jesus calls this man to leave all, in order to follow Him. 
this man lost everything because he refused to follow Christ. He, he lost what was most valuable. And then the last half of this is, is if you'll do that, as the disciples have done that, you'll gain, you'll gain even more. It's about the complication of riches. It's about the impossibility of salvation. And it's about the assurance of spiritual treasure. The whole thing is a, is a breathtaking passage. Jesus exposes the ruler's lack of righteousness according to the law and then thrusts what resides in his heart out in the open. How would you like that this morning? If God just thrust what was ever, whatever was in your heart, whatever idol you had, whatever bitterness you had, whatever difficulty, what if he just thrust it out in the open this morning before everyone in this room? That's what happens here in this scene. You might walk away like the rich young ruler, but what Jesus would call you to do, when you're exposed, you repent. And he asks the man, you ask any man, just like Jesus asked this man, do you want to go to heaven? He'll say, of course I do. But tell him he must leave earth to get there, and he says, I can't. And people want both, don't they? We have a world that's full because human beings are this way. We have a world that's full of people who want both. They want the world, and they want the benefits of Christ. They want what Jesus offers because they're smart enough to know that they don't want to go to hell, but they don't want to give up what they have to give up in order to follow, to follow Christ. And Jesus says, you must choose. Choose this day whom you shall serve. You cannot serve two masters. You'll love the one, and you'll hate the other. And the rich young ruler walked away with tears, because he was not able to have both. And Jesus, through tears, watched him walk away and said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. In fact, it is, it is impossible. And this whole scene stuns the disciples. Look at verse 23. Jesus, looking around on the heels of this, of this man walking away, when he went away grieving, in verse 22, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have possessions, plusios, to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. He's not just talking about having money here. This man was a rich young ruler. He had possessions, he had lands, he had position. He was he had a reputation. And Jesus looks around at the crowd who watched the rich young ruler come and watch him walk away, and he makes this statement. And then the next statement that Jesus makes knocks the breath out of the disciples. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus makes a second statement. But Jesus answered again and said to them, in verse 24, Children... How hard it is to enter the kingdom. And he repeats about those who have, those who have riches. And I think when we look at this scene, we look at it from our vantage point, from our eyes, having heard preaching, and we're not looking at it from a Jewish perspective or what the disciples were thought. What astonishes us is that a man would choose that. I mean, what astonished them was, were, were Jesus' words. And what he said about the impossibility of this man entering the kingdom, the impossibility of salvation. We see a man sorely convicted to the point that he clearly beholds Christ. He's on his knees before Jesus. He asks the question. 
He has his hands full of the husks of the world, and he willfully chooses the husks, not out of ignorance, but out of love for the world. That blows our minds. We, we say, why would that man do that? But what they saw was a man who looked like kingdom material. And Jesus said it's impossible for a man like that to be saved. They were looking on the outward. You might think that the disciples heard this the same way that the people heard the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds, far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean... The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. I mean, if anybody's going to heaven, they're going to heaven. That's exactly the way the disciples thought about this, about this, this man. And so for Jesus to say that he's not going to heaven, in fact, it's hard for him to go to heaven. In fact, it's impossible for this man to go to heaven is, is just, is just scandalizing to them. And the statement shocked them because they saw a religious, righteous man, but what God exposed was an idolater. The wealthy religious leaders were models of getting to heaven. And Jesus said it's, it's hard for them. You see, in the Jewish system, possessions and, and position were sign of, of God's blessing, very similar to some of the some of the nonsense that you see today in the health, wealth, gospel. And yet there's no mark of special favor in possessions or lack of them. I mean, having possessions may indicate God's favor. Not having possessions may indicate God's favor. It's neutral. It's what you do with them that matters. And in their system, if you had possessions, you could give it to the poor. You could give alms, which was part of the Jewish system. If you gave alms, that was a, that was a really good thing. And and yet on the flip side of that, we know that, that you can trust in riches and you can use good works as a mask. Riches can provide a false sense of security instead of wholehearted reliance on God. And so Jesus is talking about the, the obstacle. And yet the root issue is that they, this man didn't sense a, a lack of, of need. If you don't sense your need then you're never going to look for an answer or, or a solution. And that's the reason that the second statement bewilders them. They heard no one can achieve the entrance into the kingdom. I mean, if this guy's not going, there's no way I'm going. Who can go? And so they asked that in verse 26. Look at verse 26. They were even more astonished and said, then who can be saved? They're talking amongst themselves. They're, they're obviously talking in the presence of Jesus. If not those who provide merit on their own, who will be found in the kingdom? And then Jesus makes this epic declaration that they're right. It's impossible for man. But it's not impossible for God. All things are possible with Him. Look at verse 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible. Boy, wouldn't this be a sad, sad story if the, that sentence stopped there. <laughs> but it's like Ephesians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you did all of these things, but God, who was rich in mercy, with people it is impossible, but God, not with God. All things are possible with, with, with God. Jesus answers their question. Who then can be saved? 
And Jesus says it's the children of Abraham. Did you know verse 27 is an echo of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 18, 14? God made a promise to Abraham. Jesus says it's the children of Abraham that are going in the kingdom, not the offspring of Moses, not those who attempt to keep the law. Those who believe the promise that God made. God promised to Abraham something that was impossible for Abraham and Sarah to do. They were past childbearing age. Menopause had already set in. It's impossible for the promise to be fulfilled unless God superintends and intervenes. And what was impossible by natural ability was made possible by God's divine grace. And He promised it beforehand, right? And then what did Abraham do? He believed it. And how did Abraham prove that he believed God? He left all, he left his land, and he followed him. There's the gospel in the Old Testament. This is an echo of that very thing. Salvation is completely beyond the sphere of human possibility. And every attempt to enter the kingdom on the basis of achievement or merit is futile. But it is made possible by God. And you prove it, that you believe it, by leaving your old life and following him. That's why Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. I made the promise. I am the promise. I'm the fulfillment of the promise. I am the Messiah. Do you believe? I believe. Then leave everything and follow me. Leave your old life and follow me. It's exactly what God called Abraham to do. And with all of that happening, Peter is thinking of what was just said, evaluating his own life. And in verse 28 he says... um, What about us? I mean, we've left all. We've forsaken all and followed you. And Jesus tells Peter and us what we'll gain for following him. Do you think that God asks a lot? Does he ask a lot of us to follow him? Not in light of of the promise. What shall a man have or a woman have who's left all to follow Christ? What reward will there be? Jesus says you'll have true treasure in this life and in the life to come. And that's what's in verses 28 through through 31. And there are three promises of spiritual riches to those who, to those who follow Christ. There are spiritual riches now. You have spiritual riches right now if you're a believer. There are kingdom riches promised. Whenever Christ reigns, and that's found in the same account in Matthew, and then there are eternal riches that are to come, part of the inheritance. And that's in verses 30 through 31. The object lesson and the bridge brings us to these three promises. Look at the first one that Jesus promises here, spiritual riches now. Look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Peter's the spokesman. Notice he says, we. He doesn't just say I. We have left all. And the statement harks back to verse 21, where Jesus says, follow me. Peter says, we've left everything. We followed you. He's processing what he just observed. He's probably reeling from the impossibility statement, and he's thinking with some trepidation, that's true about us. What 
What will our place be in the resurrection? Will, will we enter? I mean, it's a natural question. I mean, if you heard Jesus say what Jesus said, and you thought the way that these men thought about the rich young ruler, you'd probably ask that question too. And so he poses the, the question. Can Peter make this statement? Is this an accurate statement? Yeah. It is. Uh, Peter could say, we testified that, that you were good because you were God at Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter's got the good part right. Peter and the rest could say, we... We did forsake human effort. We did come to you. We, we do follow you. I mean, Peter and Andrew had a home, a boat, a family, a business, and their commitment to Jesus was total. They, this is an accurate statement. And I want you to notice that Jesus affirms that in verse 29. Jesus never rebukes or corrects. He actually confirms Peter's statement. Look at verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel, but that will not receive a hundred times as much now in this present age. And he goes on. The Lord never rebukes Peter. He never corrects Peter. Peter, he actually confirms his statement in verse 29. That word truly or assuredly in the Greek is amen. Jesus says, amen, Peter. Amen. You're right. Without God's work, you can't be saved. And yet, without your response, you won't be saved. And you have done that. And the disciples experienced both. I mean, the disciples here are finally a good example. They're a contrast to the rich man. They indeed had left all and, and followed, followed Jesus. And Jesus' response goes far beyond them. Notice that he says, Truly I say to you, there is, there is no one. He's not just talking to the disciples. He's talking to all of us here this morning. There is, there is no one. You're right, Peter. Just like if anyone does this, I want to remind you what awaits them. And all that's lost in one place will be regained a hundredfold in the next. Do you believe that? Do you find it much easier to focus on what you're losing, how hard it is, what God asks you to do, what He asks you to give up, rather than focus on the hundredfold that's coming for whatever it is? You might need to re recast your gaze this morning. Are you living like that? God takes nothing away. He asks for nothing from a man or a woman he requires nothing from a person without restoring it to them in an even greater form. You say, prove it. He removes earthly status and he grants kingdom status. He requires earthly treasure. He replaces it with treasure in heaven. He demands your life and he gives you eternal life. Way better. Way better. And he's speaking not only to Peter, but but all of us. But here's something interesting. Look at what he says in verse 30. If you've left all these things, you will receive a hundred times as much 
now, in the present age. Do you expect him to say that? Do you notice that he says that? And he lists, he lists houses and brothers and, and sisters. What gain does a believer have now? I mean, I expect Jesus to say, oh yeah, give it all up now, you're going to get it in heaven. But he says now. What gain does a believer have now that's related to houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children as, as land? I mean, do the, does Jesse Duplantis have it right? $64 million airplanes? You have promise of spiritual blessings now. I mean, right here, Jesus says, if you leave all to follow me, I'll give you a hundred times that. Is, is that what Jesus is, is, is saying? Obviously, you know it's not. I want you to notice, he does say now, and I want you to notice that all of the promises that he makes are in the plural. Look at verse 30. But he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age. He's talking about right now. Houses, plural, and brothers, plural, and sisters. How many houses do you need? Well, one, maybe two, I don't know. Brothers and sisters, can you have more than one brother or sister? Yeah, you can. But look at the next one. And mothers. You think Jesus is advocating you'll have more than one, than one mother? I mean, it's possible to have more than one mother. You're adopted or some situation like that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And children and farms, plural. Choosing Jesus may separate you from your earthly family, but Jesus says your blessing now is you're going to gain a far greater family, the family of God, an even larger one. Do you realize what Jesus is saying here? Everything that you leave in life... Everything that He calls you to forsake, to follow Him, whatever is taken away from you, the hundredfold blessing is the church of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? The church is your spiritual blessing. Your spiritual riches that you get right now. Jesus says, following Him creates a family that even the boyers cannot touch. I mean, this is massive. In this church alone, you have 500 siblings, if all of them would show up at one time. And not only that, but you gain access besides brothers and sisters and mothers and, and everything else. I can remember the testimony of my pastor, Joe Hutchinson, that his father was an alcoholic and was a pipe fitter. And he would work all week and he would come home on the weekends... And most of the time he would come home, he was drunk. And whenever he got drunk, he got mean. And he would beat his mother and beat the children. And in fact, his mother, sadly, killed his father with a pistol. When they wrestled over the pistol, his father came home intoxicated and tried to do horrible things to his own daughter. And his mother pulled out a pistol and they wrestled over the pistol. And the twenty-two went off and shot his father in the heart. And Joe said that whenever God called him to preach, when he announced it, there were mumblings and rumblings in the church. That is impossible because that's Tiny Hutchinson's son. He'll never make, a, make out to be anything. And I can remember Joe saying with tears in his eyes, they knew my earthly father, but they forgot that my heavenly father was God Almighty. 
You might not have a good mother. You might not have a good father. You might, not, you might be estranged from brothers and sisters or whatever it is. You may not have nothing. But you can have other spiritual mothers. Think of the people that have, have poured into your life in Sunday school class from a child. Think of the person that originally taught you the gospel. It might not even have been your mom or your dad. And where did they come from? They came from the church. And not only that, he says that you gain access to farms or lands. What's this mean? This is not Christian communism. This is a reference to hospitality. Because you're in the family of God, you care for one another. And when you're in need, others show you hospitality. You you care for one another. You're brothers and sisters. You're in the family of God, and family takes care of family. My possessions are really God's possessions. He doesn't ask you to divest your possessions in some, you know, socialistic Jesus pool. You own your possessions. You're accountable. You're a steward over those. God will hold you accountable for what you have and what you own, but He ultimately says you're a steward. You don't own them, and you you freely give them away. You don't redistribute them. You don't need to, but anything I have is yours if you're in need. It's what Third John says, verse 5. Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers or outside of your church. You're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. He's talking about, about meeting their needs. Whatever you do in meeting the needs of the brethren, you're acting faithfully. You're acting rightly. And you're doing that especially when they're strangers. They're outside of your specific local church. And they've testified to your love before the church. And this is a story about people, other brothers and sisters that came into the church and the church met their needs. You'll do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of His name. This is caring for gospel ministry workers. And they accepted nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the, with the truth. Exactly what Jesus is saying here. The blessing that you have is you're part of a family and family cares for one another. It's a spiritual family. And a family of believers is vital in this life because of what Jesus says next. The blessing is the promise of spiritual riches now is the church Verse 30, but we'll receive a hundred as much now in this present house. And look at, at the, look at, at the, at the end, children and farms. And he adds with persecutions. You say, alright, I was tracking with this thing up to that word right there. Why does he have to throw that in? But it's, it's not bad. It, it's a reminder of the blessing that he promises in the family of God. In this world, you'll find hostility. You're not part of their family. You're not part of their family anymore. They're going to turn on you. They're going to persecute you. But you won't find that in the church, is what Jesus is saying. You'll find friendship and sacrificial love. Now, let me turn that around. Do you know what is one of the greatest contradictions of the Christian faith? Christians treating others like the world treats them. As strangers, hoarding their own possessions. Christians turning on each other 
because that's what the world brings. The world brings persecutions. And Jesus says that the church is not to be like the world because the world is without Christ. How much does Jesus think of the church? So much that he says it's the spiritual treasure you get for leaving everything in this earthly world for him. It's not optional. It's your family. But that's not all he promises. Kingdom riches when Christ reigns. Now you're going to have to turn to Matthew 19 to see this. Matthew 19. This is the exact same story in Matthew. And Jesus adds something in this passage. It's the same story. Peter said, Behold, in verse 27, Matthew 19, verse 27, We've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that you have followed me. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also will sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's talking about the kingdom. There's blessing, not only now, there's blessing coming in the in the kingdom. This is a reference to the millennial kingdom. Just as you've been regenerated spiritually, given a new birth, there's going to be a regeneration of the earth when the Son of Man will sit on His throne. It will be a rebirth of the world. Paradise will be regained. The glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will be realized. What a time that will be when the Messiah will rule, according to Psalm 2. Israel is going to be converted, restored to the land. Righteousness and peace will reign. The curse will be lifted. Life will be long. Living a hundred years will be young. The animal kingdom will be changed so that a child can play with a lion or with a snake, and a lion can lay down with a lamb. There's going to be no famine. There's going to be no hindrance to growth. The Bible says the, the deserts will blossom like a rose. Health will be normal. Satan is going to be changed along with his demons. And in the midst of his kingdom in Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be exalted and Jesus will sit on the throne. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen? What a day that's going to be. Now notice when Peter, when Jesus answers Peter here in Matthew, it's very clear that Israel will be in the kingdom. And not only that, they're going to be central. Twelve tribes, twelve thrones. And the apostles are going to reign. And you remember in Acts 3, the last question that the disciples asked Jesus before he ascends into heaven. You say, well, that's great. That's for Peter and the apostles. But how does this relate to me? What kingdom riches? In Acts 3... Before Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples ask him, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not now. Now is the time to preach the gospel. But there's a kingdom coming. And Israel's going to be at the center of it. And all the earth will be looking to her in Jerusalem where their Messiah will be. So... If the kingdom is not now, what's now? What Jesus just promised the church. And you and I, while we're not Jews, and the Jewish people in Israel will have a specific place in the kingdom, we also have a place as the church in the kingdom. Because we followed Christ, we're going to be in the kingdom. It's not the kingdom age now, it's the, it's the church age as it's called. 
And the gospel is to be preached to all men, and those who believed upon Christ will now enter that kingdom as the bride of Christ, and will sit with Him on His throne. There's the kingdom blessing. We'll rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 says, When the Lord returns with all His power and glory, we're going to be part of His conquering army, but we're not going to lift a finger. By the sword of His mouth, all the armies of the earth will be slain. And Paul says, In the kingdom, believers will rule and reign with Christ. There is kingdom riches when Christ reigns. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus in the kingdom. There's a place for Israel, and there's a place for for you that come to Christ right now. And he ends this whole thing with eternal blessing through the inheritance that is to come. Turn back to Mark, and we'll wrap this up. Mark 10, verse 30. Jesus ends with sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. There is blessing now, and you'll find that blessing in the church and what God promises in the church, which is the pillar and ground of truth. It holds up the Word. It it provokes. It, it does all the one another's. There's promise in the kingdom, and then there's... all promise in the age that is to come. And this promise goes far beyond this life. It's eternal life. And if the blessings in this life and the promises in the kingdom were not enough, you have the promise of spiritual riches in eternity. And that's the promise of every single believer. Martin Luther said, if we consider the greatness and the glory of the life that we shall have when we are risen from the dead it would be difficult at all, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word that I shall on the last day after the sentence has been pronounced not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I'll also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed, which has come to me through the merit of Christ. And what the rich young ruler was troubled to secure, Jesus promises to all of you who follow him. How much is assurance worth to you? Right here it is. This is assurance. It's a gift. And when it comes, we'll be thankful that we took, up, we took, we gave up any position that was in this world to gain the next. And so he ends with this familiar statement in verse 31. But many who were first will be last, and the last will be first. It's a common phrase that Jesus applies to many situations. And what he's saying here is following Christ may seem like you're last now. You may take last place now. How many times... Have you felt or have you looked and watched another believer humbly repent, deal with their own sin, even though somebody else is sinning, and felt in your flesh, man, that's like a spiritual doormat. I don't want to do that. Why do Christians just let people walk all over them? I felt those very things. And so I need to hear this verse. 
Following Jesus may seem like that now, but when it really matters, you'll see rightly. And what seems like last will be first. All of that humility, all of that repentance, all of that meekness, all of that following Him, being obedient regardless of whatever the world does to you, will be made right. And there's no more precious possession in this life than to have an unshakable knowledge that you're the Lord's. Nobody wants to lose everything. But a Christian really can't lose everything. You can lose your car, you can lose your house, you can lose your marriage, you can lose a child, you can even lose your freedom, but you can't lose everything. Because you're Christ, and so you can never be without hope. I love the illustration about sitting in an airport and observing the difference between passengers who have confirmed tickets and those who are on standby. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been on standby before? Those who confirm tickets, who have confirmed tickets, they're just waiting for, you know, zone one or, if you're like me, zone five or whatever it is. The ones with confirmed tickets, they read the newspaper, they, they chat with their friends, maybe they sleep. And the ones on standby are up at the ticket counter like a hundred times. They're watching the little screens, how many spaces are left. They pace. If you knew that in 15 minutes you, you, would, you would have to stand in judgment before a holy God and learn your eternal destiny, what would your reaction be? Could you sit here confidently and read your Bible? Or would you say, I, I don't know what God's going to say? Do you have a confirmed ticket? There isn't any standby in heaven. And blessed assurance is a gift to those who are following the, the, the Lord and not the world. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. And in a sense, Christians have largely ceased to think of others, think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in, in this one. What an amazing promise. Maybe you're here this morning and you're down in your heart. You're down in the heart over over what you suffer, wondering if it's going to be worth it in the end. Eye hath not seen, nor ear has heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Isaiah 64. Natural man cannot comprehend the things that God has prepared, so stop trying and live by faith. In the promise... The same promise that He gave to Abraham. And the evidence of that promise is that you leave your old life and that you follow Him. And that is obtained by faith. It's not by sight. You don't have it now. You hear the words of Jesus. You bow the knee. And you respond in repentance and faith. And then you receive the blessings that He's promised this morning.